Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow marks the five-year anniversary of marriage equality throughout the United States. Outfront Theater will celebrate with a virtual performance of Standing on Ceremony, Director Paul Conroy will tell us about this set of nine short plays surrounding gay marriage. There's more theater on the virtual stage, now from Georgia Tech. The university's theater company, Drama Tech, has been around for 73 years. We'll hear about their ambitious production of a play called Boom. First, how music can bring light to dire times. Music for the Crisis is the title of a virtual concert streaming Saturday evening at 8. The theme of the program addresses the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black communities. The concert is the brainchild of harpist Angelica Hairston, founder of the organization Challenge the Stats. She is also the artistic director of the Urban Youth Harp Ensemble, which provides free lessons to over 90 Atlanta harp students. Angelica Hairston, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. It's so great to be here. For those unfamiliar with Challenge the Stats, would you please explain what the organization does? Absolutely. So Challenge the Stats is based here in Atlanta, Georgia, and we work to really empower artists of color and use music as a tool for social change. We do that through concert programming, in-school programming, and really making sure that we're always amplifying the voices of incredible artists of color um, who don't often get to be placed on concert stages um, within our classical music field. So we're really here to change that narrative and to showcase incredible artistry 
um, of musicians of color. Mm. Angelica, you have long been involved with music at the intersection of social justice. How does Saturday evening's concert illustrate those ideas? Well, when we first planned our 2020 event, originally in March, um, we certainly never expected one, to have to push our date all the way to June, um, and second, to be in such a time, honestly, of sickness and unrest. Uh, when we first planned the Music for the Crisis event, we were really focused on um, just the disproportions that we were seeing in the healthcare system. So um, due to COVID-19, Black communities um, are, are dying due to COVID, actually at a race twice as high of other um, ethnic groups, and compared to white communities, it's actually three times as high, the deaths that we're seeing. And, and when we first saw that, we knew immediately you know, that music and the arts can be a space to really bring truth um, and highlight this disparity. But as we continued to develop this idea, then we started to see the stories of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and realize that really the root of the disproportionate deaths that we were seeing were based on the same issues of, of racial injustice in our systems throughout the nation. And so we really wanted to take Saturday to focus in on just the disproportionate effect of racial injustice that we're seeing come at a time of COVID-19. So it's really these two um, almost viruses that we've been um, really looking at and finding a way through the arts to speak truth um, to the issues that have been coming to the surface in our nation. Beautifully put. I spoke with a Black artist last week who summed up what you described when she said the battle is taking place on two fronts with COVID-19 hitting hardest in Black communities and protests surrounding the recent murders resulting from police brutality. Would you tell us about some of the music that will be performed on Saturday evening's program? Absolutely. So the program itself will feature 11 Black artists, and we really came together and, and curated this program in a very holistic way, where many of the artists sort of chose pieces that were resonating with them during this time. So artists like Andrew Brady, who is the principal bassoonist of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, will perform a piece by Mark Lomax called Trouble Won't Last, an incredible work for bassoon and piano that really just explores this idea of current trouble and unrest, but also some, some hopefulness as we start to see change. Thank you. 
giving the premiere of um, Brandy Younger's Harp Solo, Essence of Ruby, the Southeastern premiere, which is an incredible work for solo harp and really tying that work into the reality that, that women of color are really overrepresented on the front lines as essential workers. Every piece that's programmed uh, is actually by a living Black composer and we really wanted to use the music of, of people who are alive at the time experiencing this to really speak truth to the issues that we've been seeing arise in, in this time. In the piece by Brandy Younger, Ruby is not inspired by Ruby D, the actress. It's not. So Brandy actually wrote this piece based on her birthstone, Ruby. <laughs> oh, that's mine um, too. Is it? Well, there you go. Happy birthday of, of June. Um, <laughs> July too. Oh, I love it. July. Yes, but she, um, she did. She actually wrote it really inspired by Alice Coltrane and, and some of the incredible music that Alice Coltrane wrote, and, and you can actually hear a lot of those sort of themes and the style of music of Alice Coltrane that's inspired in this piece. Okay. I see a piece on the program by Valerie Coleman, a marvelous musician with the Imani Winds. Is she still with that? So she, I believe, is, is now composing independently, but still does a significant amount um, with Imani Wins and has certainly had a career where she's been at the forefront of using music um, as a powerful tool to, to speak truth to so many different realities. So Tara Birdsong will be performing a piece by Valerie Coleman, uh, Fami Iman, which is translated as human family. And it takes themes from Maya Angelou's poem, Human Family, that talks about our differences but how those differences can really celebrate unity without being uniform. It's a very powerful piece and, and has a very powerful message for our time. With a name like Birdsong, how could she not become a musician? This has to you be know, prophetic. 
Birdsong, Angelica, it's, <laughs> it was all meant to be from the beginning, right? Oh, yes. The concert originates from the Sanctuary of First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. How were the musicians able to perform at a safe social distance? That's a great question and something we certainly had to consider going into this concert. Um, the vast majority of the musicians will be performing either by themselves or um, just with piano. And so we were able to sort of measure out the space, make sure everyone was entering with masks. And the final piece is actually for string quartet. And so that will be masked players uh, performing a piece called In Response to the Madness by Joelle Thompson. And when we first picked this piece, we really had to think about what were the ways that we could safely um, rehearse and perform this work. And even visually seeing a quartet of masked performers spoke to a response to the current madness in a way that we didn't expect. It was a, a very powerful time for us uh, to be able to make music in such, such a climate um, in our nation right now. And I think for many of the artists, we really felt that this was a way that we could use what we know best, the power of the arts, to really speak through the music that we're able to perform. And Joel Thompson has been inspired by tragedy before. Wasn't his piece the choral work? Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. Yes, so very powerful. Was that on a program you presented as well? So we've worked with Joelle actually quite a bit in, in our time here in Atlanta, and we commissioned a piece from him about two years ago that was centered around the words of inmates who are currently in the, in the prison system. It was a piece for harp and tenor. And actually in this upcoming concert, Joelle will join me as well as Dr. Adrian Ross for a pre-concert Facebook Live discussion where we'll be talking about the ways in which music can bring light to the realities of the time. And what's interesting is Joel actually battled COVID himself um, really? about a month ago. He did. So there's a, there's a deep understanding of the ways that people of color and specifically the Black community are being deeply impacted even on this program. Oh, yes. And he is one of today's finest young voices. I, I, you know, I, I hesitate to call him an emerging composer because he is established, but still young. Absolutely. Will the virtual concert be free of charge? It will. So everyone is welcome to view the virtual concert. Um, you can find more information at challengethestats.org backslash crisis. And there will be many places that you can stream it, um, but we'll definitely be engaging through the comments and really encouraging everyone not only to listen, but also to take action. Really is the goal is, is not only to bring this music to light, but to really use it as a catalyst for those watching to then take those next steps towards creating change in our society. Atlanta harpist and activist Angelica Hairston. Music for the Crisis, a virtual event, will be streamed this Saturday evening at 8. 
there will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Georgia Tech is renowned for its prestigious engineering, computer science, and advanced technology programs. Far less known is that for the past 73 years, the university has had a student-run theater component, Drama Tech. Their current virtual play is running through Saturday. Joining me now are Melissa Folger, the Artistic Director of Drama Tech, and Austin Hughes, actor and engineering student at Tech. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. We're so glad to be here. Let's talk about this current production. The play is titled Boom. Can you give us a synopsis? Absolutely. The play is about two young people, Jules, who's played by Austin, who is a marine biology uh, graduate student, and he puts out an ad for a date, and that ad is answered by Joe, who is an undergraduate journalism student. And they come to find out that this isn't a one-night date. Jules is looking for someone to spend the rest of his life with. Little do we know, but there is about to be a comet that hits the earth and will leave them as the last two people on earth. And so we follow their story through multiple parts of time. And then we are introduced to this godlike character named Barbara, who come to find out is controlling a lot of their life in ways that they don't really know about um, and is telling a greater story about how life began on Earth. Boom was written several years ago. Uh, There was actually a production at the Aurora Theater probably 10 or 12 years ago now, I'm guessing. So it's been around longer than than the coronavirus. It's been around longer than a lot of things, probably my job even at Georgia Tech, but the message still holds up, which I think is why we wanted to go forward with it. I guess I should not be surprised that physics and existential questions and the existence of God all are addressed in this play being put on by Georgia Tech. Yeah, we pick a lot of things that tend to have a scientific or anything in that nature tends to be a lot of the direction we go for. But also, you know, we do a lot of classics as well. We try to cover the gamut and do a little of everything. But science does play a large role in in our production. Austin, I read that you have been active with Drama Tech for the last four years, but this is your first acting role. How did you prepare for your role? Well, there's always the audition process that Drama Tech does, although this time it was a little more different where we auditioned online virtually. And uh, so we had sides from the play that we read and auditioned for. 
those. And we recorded those, sent them in, and awaited uh, the response. Once I was cast, we began rehearsals online, which generally when I prepare for uh, like auditioning for a part, I like to read through the entire play if I can, just so I can get a really good feel for the character and so that I can portray them in what I think is the most accurate, to me, uh, portrayal of said character. And so once we began online, it was, we were all in our own homes uh, and we would tune into Zoom and uh, practice initially with reading. And then we started working on blocking and then adding components of tech. And then next thing you know, we've got a show. (laughs) I can only imagine the challenges all of you had with putting this on virtually. And this production takes place in real time. So attendees, viewers will experience this in the moment. Yes, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> do you want to talk about it? From It's pretty, it's very scary sometimes. Austin, do you want to talk about it from your end as an actor, what that's like? Yeah, so we, we get called at our designated call time where we get all mic'd up and in our costumes and ready to go uh, for the run of the show. And then our lovely house grips, who happen to be my roommates, cue us on and then we go and we just no stopping run through the show. And what's very unique about this experience is we don't actually get any feedback from the audience that is watching us because they're watching through Zoom. And so we don't really get to have a good idea of how we're doing, how we're how we're working the crowd, how they're enjoying our show, because all we hear is each other. And so it can be a little, it can be a little daunting when you're not really sure how you're doing, but it's, so it it requires a certain level of confidence to just keep pushing through and get through the show. But then when you get to the end of the show, people get to, to tell you how great you did and you get to go back and read the comments that people put through that throughout the Zoom performance. Uh, And it's very, very heartwarming. Oh, so there is this interactive component. What can you tell us about your character, Jules? Of course, Jules is kind of awkward, very literal in the way he speaks. But also, I think he's got quite a bit of optimism in how he presents. He, he likes to look at the world glass half full. And it's kind of surprising because he, he's kind of alone. He doesn't really have anyone else. His family has left him. He's the only member of his family that's still alive. And so you, you kind of wonder how he's really doing on the inside. But he portrays outwardly very positively, and he's very passionate about his plan to save the human race. Melissa, do you think the play is targeting a particular age group? Um, I mean, it is college-age characters in the play. So it tends to speak well to college, early 20s, early 30s. But then we also have Barbara, who is this other character, the mysterious character, who is an older woman, and she takes us out of their world and into the larger world. Despite their age, though, the, the, you know, the fact that they are trapped in a room together, they are trying to live through a cataclysmic event. These are things that speak to all of us considering the current situation we've all been in. So, you know, we understand being locked in a room with the same people and how do you manage that? How do you negotiate relationships? All of those pieces speak, I think, on a larger level to a larger audience. Does the fact that the actors are majoring in engineering of some sort 
help in terms of tech savviness with this production? Well, I think what it does is opens us up to use some technology in a way that a lot of theaters don't have the capability because they don't have that expertise available at their fingertips. When we set off on this path to do the show, we really wanted to look at Is this feasible? Is this something other theaters could be doing? And if we find a proven source for how to make it work, could we then share that information with other theaters? That was one of our goals. So now that we've proven that it's possible, the idea is that hopefully we can help other people to be able to do things like this and to give the feel of being in a theatrical experience, even if you're doing it virtually. What was Drama Tech working on before the pandemic? We were working on our musical, A New Brain, and that was supposed to open about two weeks after Georgia Tech closed. So it's the set is still sitting there in our theater, waiting for an audience, (laughs) and hopefully we'll get to um, go back to that show sometime in the next season. Do you think Drama Tech will incorporate digital performances into future productions? Yes, I think in in some way. We don't know what's going to happen with the fall, so we are already planning for our fall semester. The two shows that we'll be producing will be done virtually in some capacity. So we know that we're going to be continuing this for a while, and as we see what happens with the pandemic, we'll go from there. Of course, you know, Drama Tech being on the campus of Georgia Tech, we have always embraced the idea of how does technology integrate into performance and how does it allow us to take traditional theater and add the technology that we already have available and technology that doesn't exist yet into theatrical performance. So uh, whether it's virtual or live, there, there tends to always be an element of technology in many of our productions. Melissa Folger, Artistic Director of Drama Tech, and Austin Hughes, actor and engineering student at Georgia Tech. Drama Tech's virtual performance of Boom will be streamed tonight through Saturday evening at 8. There will be more information on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. We're revisiting our conversation now with Claire Summerskill, a British actor, comedian, and writer who runs her own theater company in the U.K., Claire is also a lesbian. We spoke in 2018 when she was in Atlanta with her show From Fairly Vocal to Very Focal. Here, Claire Summerskill talks about the wide appeal of her show across all audience members. I'm a bit long in the tooth and I've been doing lesbian shows and LGBT related uh, productions for many, many years now. And whilst in England anyway, I've got quite a bit of a following from that sort of audience. Um, Straight people will still say, you know, but will I enjoy it? Will I relate to it? Is there anything in it for me? And I can't help thinking, well, we watch predominantly straight stuff on television, on films, in stand up, like 
all of our lives. But straight people, I'm sorry, they just sort of just want to double check that maybe it might also be relevant for them or that they might even laugh. <laughs> so that's, I think where that came from is like, and straight people might even find this really? funny. And afterwards, um, after shows, if people bring straight people along, um, they'll say, oh, they really enjoyed it. They enjoyed it. <laughs> like uh, Even they that's laugh. Right. That's right. So, I mean, I don't make the divide. Unfortunately, I think it is there. Um, but, um, you know, on many levels, humour is universal. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, few weeks ago, well, I guess maybe uh, last month, I spoke with the American comedian Julie Goldman, and she was saying how um, she would love to help write a sitcom and act in it and be the woman who lives next door, not the lesbian next door, although she is a lesbian, you know, but just... Can we can we get to that point where you know it, you don't raise an eyebrow about eliciting a chuckle? I would love it if you could talk about um, music in your comedy. I know you've done cabaret shows and you grew up playing music. When you started doing comedy was incorporating music in your routines just as natural? Yes, it was something I did from the very, very beginning. I was a jobbing actress for many years, and I had a sort of cabaret act on the side with another woman. Uh, When we weren't acting, we'd get together and do it. And I just love writing comedy songs. Um, Absolutely adore it. Always have, from listening to Tom Lehrer when I was a kid onwards. Uh, sometimes they're in fashion and sometimes they go out of fashion (laughs) and sometimes radio shows go right as a comedy song for this what I used to write on topical uh, um, shows in in this, in England, and other times they'll go, no, don't do songs. We're not doing songs at the moment. And I've just always enjoyed um, writing comedy songs. So I do in my shows. I do comedy songs. I do stand up, and I also do um, a selection of ballads because I'm a singer songwriter as well. So I bung those right in the middle, when just when everyone's feeling comfortable and having a good time. Uh, <laughs> then you hit them with the love ballads. That's right. Slip a few in, maybe a political song or two, and then go back to the comedy. And in a way, I know now um, that that is an odd mix, and I do the same on my CDs. I do a mixture of those sort of songs, and very few people in the industry can get their head around that, but it, it doesn't matter because that's who I am. I, I, I'm... I'm both of those things. I'm a comedian, but I also am interested in uh, writing a decent song, and I'm also interested in politics. So I tend to mix them all up, and people seem to enjoy that. Now, what are some of the song titles that you have written in these satirical Well, I tend to do a lot of my comedy songs are are relational, about relationships. And having said that, they're usually about bad relationships because (laughs) where's the comedy in good relationships? So they're title-wise, I mean, there's one called Why Can't I Find Someone Normal? And there's another song that seems ridiculously popular, which is called The Revenge Song. And it's about 
how, because I'm a lesbian, you might have mentioned that, and I've got a guitar, and what lesbians do is they usually write a love song about uh, whoever they've uh, recently split up from um, and or whoever's dumped them. And Yes, straight people never do that. It's a really lesbian thing. You sit down, you write your love song. And uh, so that song is, is, is about me sitting down, trying to write a love song about my ex who dumped me from a very great height, not being able to, but realising that a lot of my feelings were quite revengeful at that particular time. Oh. And so I wrote what's called the revenge song, and that's just what came out instead of a love song. And as I said, for some reason, that seems to go down very well with the audiences. <laughs> Everyone can identify <laughs> with revenge. <laughs> what have your experiences with American audiences been like compared to those you've performed for in the UK? Well, I did a previous show uh, a few years ago in Atlanta, a comedy show. And for me, that was testing out exactly what you're talking about is does, will my material work over here? And is there a divide at all in uh, the humour with uh, Americans and uh, English people? And I had uh, some great nights um, doing that show, more laughter than I've even got in England. So I guess the answer was it's fine as long as, of course, you change cultural references, you know, maybe to a television programme that's on in one country or whatever, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but I don't... I Nowadays, maybe 20 years ago, there was a difference. Uh, you could have picked up a difference. But nowadays, I, I don't find that at all. And the other thing is I, I think more and more Americans that I meet tend to have this quite dry, satirical sense of humour, which I think British people do as well. So I think we share that more now than anything that, that divides us. Interesting. It seems like you have this amazing life where you're able to do your comedy and sing comedic songs about subjects like revenge. <laughs> but then you... They're not all about revenge. Just, all just, about Just mentioning that. Just you wait, Henry Higgins, or fill in the blank. <laughs> most recent lover. But then you also tackled these subjects in a scholarly way. You are working on a PhD, I understand. Yes, that's in my spare time. Yes, which clearly you have lots <laughs> Don't tell of my it. supervisor that. <laughs> Has working on the PhD influenced your theatrical and comedy work? I don't think it's influence. It's more the other way around. I'm, I'm, uh, I have a theatre company. With my theatre company, um, I tend to do more serious subjects, often related to the LGBT community, but not always. They're, the one before last was about uh, mental health service users in the UK. It's all what's called verbatim theatre, which I think is known as documentary theatre in the States, where okay. you write a play purely from interviews with a particular group of people about a particular subject. Those tend to be political. The last big tour I did was called Rites of Passage. My, I wrote it from interviews, and it's about LGBT asylum seekers in the UK. So to answer your question, um, a lot of, because I'm doing a theatre PhD, um, I write a lot about my own projects and um, the topics that I'm addressing in those projects. So that sort of tends to feed into my academic work, but less so, obviously, anything to do with the comedic side of things. So this is a very different side of your nature. And 
I understand that um, with uh, writing about mental health, you drew upon personal experiences for hearing voices. That must have been very difficult for you. Yes, just to make it clear, I, I, uh, well, not make anything clear, but um, uh, what happened is I had a bit of a breakdown, as you do if you're a stand-up comic, and um, ended up in a hospital uh, with a lot of other people who were absolutely amazing. And because I'm into oral history and because I write verbatim theatre, I decided to, when we all got out of hospital, to interview them about their life's experiences. Um, I felt that the uh, system we were in, the psychiatric system, was not really interested in talking to any of us or getting to know any of us. They were interested in medicating medicating us, which is really what the premise of the show was about. And that's why the play was called Hearing Voices. It's not because I was hearing voices. It's because I felt that the voices of these patients, these wonderful friends and people that I met, were not being heard by the system that was trying to help them. So that was as far as my experience went uh, into the mental health system. Was it therapeutic for you writing the play? I don't think it was, but I think it politically it was something I was um, very keen to do. And um, also, as I said, with my interest in people's stories, I mean, I love stories. I love oral histories. That's another of my hats. And uh, I was just hearing stories that you couldn't make up if you were a dramatist, if you were making up fiction. You, the, I, From the horse's mouth, I was hearing amazing things. And I just thought these could be dramatised. This could be really, really interesting and moving as a play. So that's why it took me into that area of work. Stand-up comedian, actor and writer Claire Summerskill recorded at WABE in 2018. She's the author of four books and runs comedy writing workshops for women. In a moment, a virtual celebration of marriage equality from Outfront Theater Company. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R I C H M O N T dot edu. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Tomorrow... June 26th marks the fifth anniversary of the Supreme Court's ruling that the U.S. Constitution guarantees a right to same-sex marriage. In observance of the anniversary, Outfront Theater will present an online celebration. Standing on ceremony, the gay marriage play, Paul Conroy is the artistic director of Outfront Theatre. He is with us now via Zoom. Paul, welcome back to City Lights. 
Thank you for having me, Lois. It's great to be here, even virtually. I'm sorry we can't see each other face to face. Oh, but it's much safer and healthier this way. Absolutely. The production will feature nine different plays. Are they unified in the way they address aspects of gay marriage? Not really. It's it's really a wonderful collection of nine plays. Some are more serious, some are more lighthearted. And what's interesting is that the playwrights have looked at the issue not just after the fact of when marriage became equal for all. Some of them uh, dress when it's when it was only legal in a few states. One play talks about that small window of time in California before Proposition 8 was overturned. A couple of them talk about it after the fact that it's all been legalized across the entire country. So it's interesting to see different playwrights' perspectives and also the different points of time leading up to and after marriage equality. Yeah, I'm glad you explained that because the original run of Standing Ceremony came out several years before the marriage equality decision. And so some of the plays still land as historical pieces. Absolutely. There's one play where it's a lesbian couple and they are actually in California, but they have to fly to Iowa because it's only legal in Iowa at that point. It's not, this was before it was legal in California. So it's not just a snapshot of one point in time. It's a series of snapshots leading up to and including the Supreme Court decision. This is an ambitious undertaking, Paul. The performances will be done by various actors and streamed from those actors' homes. Can you talk about the challenges you face trying to produce such a project? (laughs) Well, sometimes there are things working against us just as as insignificant as a bad internet connection. And we're actually working with performers. Most of them are based around uh, the greater Atlanta area, but we have some in different states that have left Georgia and are in North Carolina. We have one performer who's in New York City. So uh, first of all, it's a little like herding cats because you're trying to find everyone a unified time to rehearse and then perform and figuring out sound levels and lighting. It's very interesting taking this on because there are things that are we've never even thought of before in the traditional world of theater because the traditional world of theater doesn't exist right now and it may not exist again for several months. Mm. Let's hope it may exist again in several months. Yeah. Let's talk about the play The Gay Agenda and how it uses satire to deal with homophobia. (laughs) So The Gay Agenda is by Paul Rudnick, and Paul Rudnick is one of my favorite authors. We actually did a play of his our first season, The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, and he has two plays in here. So the gay agenda is mostly a monologue from a character named Mary Abigail, 
who is a conservative mother of two from Ohio. And she's addressing a local meeting of like-minded people. And she starts to talk about how tolerant she is, but she just can't understand how she can be tolerant of LGBTQ plus people and gay marriage. And she starts to hear what she calls the gay voice that is judging her and talking about her commemorative plates and about how she has to lose weight. And um, it ends up building and building so much that she can't get this voice out of her head, even though she keeps saying, but I love my neighbors and they're a same sex couple. And it's really, it's really a funny play. Uh, Abby Holland, who is performing it, does a wonderful job because I think it takes this stereotype of this character that we all know some sort of iteration of, and it just takes it to such an extreme place with the things that she's talking about and how she's hearing this judgment in her own head, even though she's saying, but I'm okay with it. But at the same time, she's not okay with it. Hmm. What can you tell us about my husband? So that is another, that's the other play that Paul Rudnick wrote in this. So it is a comedy as well. That is a Jewish mother and son. That one actually takes place. She mentions right after it, uh, marriage became legal in New York state. So they're both based in Manhattan. And it is a mother who has been trying to marry her son off for years, not necessarily because he's in love or he's met anyone, but because she wants to outdo all of her friends whose children are getting married. And now finally her son who is gay is allowed to be married as well. So it's funny, but it's also touching because it shows the love and desire of a parent for their child to be happy. She just wants her son to be married and to be quote normal like everyone else. And finally that was able to come true. Neil Labute is one of our foremost playwrights today. His take on gay marriage or advances in civil rights is powerful in Strange Fruit, starting with the title. Yeah, the title, of course, most people will be familiar with the song. And if they're not, I hope that they go and find it on YouTube, especially before watching the show. And I'm hesitant to say that it's a modern day lynching, but there is definitely an anti-gay event that happens in this play that alters the lives of the two characters. And it's left a little ambiguous for the audience to discuss, but it's heartbreaking nonetheless. And it shows that even with advances that we as a queer community is making, are making, there's still a long way to go. A similar point is made by Moises Kaufman with London Mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. That is a a tour de force monologue performed by Robert Wayne, which many Atlanta audiences, um, audience members have seen all over. And it's talking about these, 
this couple of gay men who have been together for 47 years and marriage equality came a little too late for them. And it talks about they don't want to get married because if they get married, then the next year is going to be their first anniversary. And what does that say about the previous 47 years that they spent together? And, and those, are, those are things that I think a lot of people just don't think of, that it wasn't just the Supreme Court said everyone can get married and it was a light switch and everyone ran off and get married. The, the dynamics in all these pieces are so varied and that's what's so wonderful about them because I don't think that there's any topic that we could talk about in theater where everyone 100% black and white can understand everything a character is saying and going through and everyone in an audience is going to completely look at it the same way. So to have nine plays by, you know, a gamut of playwrights looking at this, it's really great. The evening will close with Pablo and Andrew at the Altar of Words. Why is this a fitting end to the evening? Pablo and Andrew at the Altar of Words is two people giving their vows to each other. And ultimately, that's what, to me, what marriage is. I just recently got married this past May. Mazel tov. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, it, it, it's a wonderful feeling to know that you can express yourselves finally um, publicly in whatever way that you want. And Pablo and Andrew are here before all of their friends and family. And they talk about how they have written their own vows, but then they go off on their own and just speak from the heart. And to me, that's what marriage is, regardless of the gender identity of the two people. It's about speaking from the heart to the other person that you're going to look at for the rest of your life. We've discussed the progress that's been made towards LGBTQ equality, but so much work still needs to be done. Paul, how do you think theater can help to bring about positive changes in attitudes and behavior? I've always thought that theater should be a conversation starter, and sometimes it's more digestible for people to go and see a show than it might be to read a book or to hear a lecture or something like that. And I think... Theater is a great unifier. So we as theater makers need to look at more stories that highlight black, indigenous, people of color, stories and artists. And we need to look at more queer stories across the spectrum. Just because our mission is queer focused doesn't mean that other theaters shouldn't be looking at those shows too because they will reach an audience member that we don't reach. And I just think that there's a level of empathy that you can get at the theater because it's in person. And that's what I think, 
I'm, I'm excited that we're able to mark the anniversary of marriage equality in this way. And I'm excited that we can reach so many people because anyone around the world is going to be able to watch it. But there's a part of me that's disappointed that there isn't that in-person interaction. There isn't that connection that an artist on stage has with an audience. And obviously we would never put anyone's health in jeopardy, but it's that empathy. It's that being able to hear an audience member laugh or applaud or cry is what I think is the backbone of theater and what has allowed it to exist for thousands and thousands of years to tell these stories that are universal, no matter how you identify. Paul Conroy, here's hoping on the next anniversary of marriage equality, we may be able to gather at the theater in person. For now, congratulations on this ambitious virtual celebration by Outfront Theater. And thank you for talking with me. Thank you for taking the time, Lois. I appreciate it. Paul Conroy, founder of Outfront Theatre Company and director of Standing Ceremony, the Gay Marriage Plays. For more information on when and where to stream the play, check our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at... L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can listen to past interviews and shows from our archives at wabe.org slash citylights. And subscribe to our new podcast on just about any app. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.